Uh, welcome back. We are going to be thinking about Spurgeon's uh, pastoral ministry. In uh, you know, in, in terms of Spurgeon's scholarship, I think it is striking to me that often that that is an overlooked aspect of Spurgeon's life. Uh, people talk a lot about Spurgeon's uh, sermons that he preached every week that were published all over the world, uh, the orphanages that he ran, uh, the, the pastor's college, uh, his suffering. But, you know, one thing that we just can't overlook is that at, at the bottom of it all, sort of at the, sort of the, the foundational kind of ministry that Spurgeon had was that he was a local church pastor. And really that's what I try to talk about in my book, um, and that's what I want to focus on in this session. And really I won't be able to cover all that actually Blake just said. Uh, we, we don't have that much time. But I'll try to give you maybe something of a summary of that. Uh, let's go ahead and pull up the next portrait here. There you go. Uh, so, you know, this church that started as a few dozen people when Spurgeon first arrived in 1853, that would grow to go on to become the largest church in all of evangelicalism in the 19th century. Really the first megachurch of his, of, of his day, of our time. Uh, in 1861, they would build debt-free this magnificent new building, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. I think this picture here on the back of your bulletin is um, a mock-up of an earlier iteration of what they hoped it would look like. The facade is correct, but I don't think they built the upper structures in the end because it ended up being too expensive. Um, but if you go to London today, they're in Southwark. Southwark? How do you say that? Southwark? Um, you can see the Metropolitan Tabernacle still there. The, the front facade is original to the, to the original. Uh, but the back has been rebuilt multiple times because it's burned down and, and bombed and other things. Um, yeah, this beautiful new, new building in 1861 seated over 6,000 people. Uh, by Spurgeon's death, the church had a membership of over 5,000. Uh, and he was famous all over the world. Visitors came from all over the world to hear Spurgeon preach. Back in those days, if you came from America to London, people would probably ask you, hey, did you see the queen? And then, did you see Spurgeon? <laughs> did you hear Spurgeon preach? Uh, so here's a, a picture of Spurgeon preaching to his people. Notice on the bottom gallery there, you've got his orphans sitting there closest to Spurgeon. You know how, like, the pastor's family often sits in the front row where everybody can see them? Um, Spurgeon would have the orphans sit in the front closest to him because that, that was, in many ways, his family. You know, they had the best seats in the house. Um, and you also notice, if we can zoom in under his armpit, uh, some famous people that were, we photoshopped in uh, that went to go hear Spurgeon. So near to Spurgeon, under his armpit, you've got D.L. Moody, uh, an American preacher from Chicago, famous revivalist. Uh, you know, D.L. Moody was an Arminian. Uh, he was not a Calvinist, but Spurgeon and, and Moody were good friends. Uh, they both believed the same gospel. Spurgeon, on one occasion, invited him to preach at his church. Uh, next to D.L. Moody, you've got a Missouri native. You've got Samuel Clements, a.k.a. Mark Twain. Uh, he went to go hear Spurgeon preach at one, one time. Uh, you can find in Twain's diary his account of being at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He was not impressed. He thought it was boring. You know, the, the sermons were too judgy. And, uh, and he walked away unimpressed. He actually then go on, went on to meet with Charles Darwin the next Monday morning, and he enjoyed that meeting much more. He found Darwin much more enlightening. 
Uh, so you can, you can learn something about Twain there. Uh, next to Twain, you've got Queen Victoria dressed in peasant garb, uh, according to legend. Victoria dressed in commoner's clothing and went in disguise, went to go hear Spurgeon preach. Uh, next to Victoria, you've got Florence Nightingale with the white headband. Um, Spurgeon supported her ministry. Nightingale was a pioneer in nursing, uh, did a lot of work with soldiers, uh, caring for them, especially coming out of the Crimean War. And, and, and she did it as a ministry, and Spurgeon supported what she was doing. Uh, next to Florence, you've got um, Senator Garfield coming from America to hear Spurgeon. He would go on to become a president in the United States. Uh, then you've got a, a couple of publishers there, Passmore and Alabaster. They were the ones who worked with Spurgeon to publish all of his sermons and books. Next to them, you've got this big, the, the big gray beard. That's Hudson Taylor, missionary to China. Uh, again, another famous figure in church history. Spurgeon supported his, a lot of his, a lot of his members that went out to go work in China went to go work with Hudson Taylor. Um, so he was a big supporter. And I think next to Taylor, you've also got a young George Mueller, who was uh, an inspiration for Spurgeon and his orphanage work. Um, we can go back to the previous picture. Uh, you know, there's much to be said about all the visitors who came, but really I want to focus on the members of the church, uh, because if there's a lesson in this picture, it would be focused on that local church. We call it the lesson of the church, and the lesson is this. The church is to be a display of God's glory. The church is to be a display of God's glory. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 3, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And, and what Paul is talking about there in terms of the church being the, man, the display of God's manifold wisdom, he's not referring to the pastors or the elders or the deacons. He's referring to the people, the congregation. As Jews and Gentiles come together in love under the gospel, God's glory, God's wisdom is being put on display to the watching universe. Uh, the church is a display of God's glory. This was Spurgeon's conviction. He understood that the church was not just about a show or a performance. It wasn't about him and his preaching. Uh, it wasn't an event. No, it was about the people, the congregation, the people of God. And, and therefore, as a pastor, he cared a lot to make sure that he had a true church, a living church, that together displayed something of God's greatness. You know, Spurgeon lived uh, in a time in England where to be English was to be Christian. Uh, in 1851, there was a census taken uh, throughout the UK, and about 61% of the population reported as being church-going. Um, by way of comparison, in 2022, that number in America is probably less than 20%. Uh, in the UK, the number is probably less than 5%. So you think about 61%, that's quite incredible. Uh, you know, if, if all of our churches tripled in attendance tomorrow, by you know, we'd be all... Sh shocked and amazed and rejoicing. Um, <clears throat> it's easy for us to be impressed with this idea of 61% of the population going to church. And yet Spurgeon, when he saw that, he, he wasn't that impressed. When he looked at all the religious activity around him, he, he saw that it wasn't all spiritual. You know, he, he, he wrote this, in going up and down this land, I'm obliged to come to this conclusion that Throughout the churches, there are multitudes who have a name to live and are dead. Religion has become fashionable. The shopkeeper could scarcely succeed in a respectable business if he were not united with the church. It is reckoned to be reputable and honorable 
to attend a place of worship, and hence, men are made religious. You know, among that larger population, it was a respectable thing to go to church, and yet a lot of people were dead spiritually. Um, and among churches, even the evangelical churches of his day, Spurgeon saw pastors just doing what they could to attract people to church. Uh, they would let people decide what went on in the services. They would let people vote on their choice of a minister. Uh, there should be entertainments and amusements in which people could assist in. Spurgeon says this, The theory seems to be that it is well to have a broad gangway from the church to the world. If this be carried out, the result will be that the nominal church will use the gangway to go over to the world, but it will not be used in the other direction. So uh, Spurgeon lived in a time where the theology was becoming more secularized. Um, churches were starting to trust more in reason and progress rather than in the scriptures and the gospel. And in the watering down of how they did church, of what they believed, Spurgeon saw churches and Christians becoming less and less distinct from the world. So Spurgeon wanted to fight back against all of this, and he did so with this one conviction called regenerate church membership. Uh, this idea that only born-again Christians should be members of local churches, um, should be brought into church membership. You know, what he tried to practice is what we see in the New Testament, that only those who give a credible profession of faith are those who are baptized and brought into church fellowship. You know, the New Testament has no idea of somebody who's culturally a Christian, right, or who thinks that he's born into a Christian family and therefore he is a Christian. No, rather, salvation is through repentance and faith in Christ alone, and therefore all those who belong to the church are those who have a, a living faith in Christ. Uh, when the church properly upholds regenerate church membership, the church stands in distinction from the world like a lamp shining in the darkness. So here's what Spurgeon says about church membership. Touching all the members of this assembly, there is an eternal purpose, which is the original reason for their being called. And to each of them is also an effectual calling, whereby they actually gather into the church. Then also there is a hedging and fencing about this church by which it is maintained as a separate body distinct from all the rest of mankind. And so it's this idea of a hedging and fencing about the church which he calls church membership, that he is trying to make clear that there's a distinction between the church and the world, uh, that the church is fundamentally distinct from the world. But how do you do that? How do you practice regenerate church membership uh, in a church where there are visitors coming week after week, where there's 5,000, 6,000 people showing up? Um, how do you examine people's profession of faith? How do you walk alongside them to help them live out that profession of faith? Um, and how did Spurgeon do all of that? So I just want to talk about two things, uh, his membership process and how he maintained a meaningful membership. So membership process, first of all, um, <clears throat> one of the ways that he promoted uh, a membership process was just through this, this sort of rigorous uh, membership process. Uh, this is how he promoted regenerate church membership. And as I looked at it, I, I discovered at least six steps in that process. Uh, step number one. Uh, would be an elder interview. Someone would come during the week and they would meet with one of the elders of the church. You would share your testimony. You'd share your understanding of the gospel. And as the elder heard all that, he would take notes. He would write all that down. You can go to the Metropolitan Tabernacle today, go to the archives, and find rows and rows 
of testimony books, of testimonies that the elders wrote down um, of these people coming to join the church. And if they felt that this was a sincere profession of faith, they would then be recommended to step two, which is to meet with the pastor. So then step two, the pastor would come, uh, or you would come and have an appointment to meet with Spurgeon himself. And Spurgeon would have read your testimony ahead of time, and he would have you know, jotted down any questions that he would have, any things to highlight, and he would interview you. And, and um, it could be very straightforward, or it could result in, in more questions. You know, Spurgeon said this about membership interviews. Whenever I hear of candidates being alarmed at coming before our elders or seeing the pastor or making a confession of faith before the church, I wish I could say to them, dismiss your fears, beloved ones. We shall be glad to see you, and you will find your conversation with us a pleasure rather than a trial. So far from wishing to repel you, if you really do love the Savior, we shall be glad enough to welcome you. If we cannot see in you the evidence of a great change, we shall kindly point out to you our fears, and we shall be thrice happy to point you to the Savior. But be sure of this. If you have really believed in Jesus, you will not find the church terrible to you. You know, so uh, what I appreciate about what Spurgeon is saying here is, you know, these were not like job interviews or, you know, he's not testing your, your like, theological knowledge. No, he, he wants to make sure, do you really know Jesus? Do you really love him? Do, do you have a clear understanding of the gospel? Is there evidence of change in your life? And if there is, boy, this is going to be a real pleasant conversation. You know, we're going to have a really encouraging time together. Uh, if, if a person struggles to make a credible profession of faith, you know, this was an evangelistic opportunity. Uh, an opportunity to tell them about Jesus and to maybe arrange a Bible study or, or something like that. So, so uh, Spurgeon was very welcoming and pastoral in these conversations. Uh, after that, uh, if all went well, the, they would go to the congregation at the congregational meeting, and one of the elders would present that testimony. There would be a proposal, and the congregation would then vote on sending a messenger to go see uh, the, the candidate who was applying. So step four, there would be a messenger coming to make an inquiry. Uh, a messenger would then show up at your home, at your place of work, in your neighborhood, and ask around. You know, they would say, hey, did you know so-and-so is joining the church? Uh, what do you think of him? Did you know he was a Christian? Oh, you did. Oh, good. Uh, did you know that he, he's wanting to be a member of the Metropolitan Tabernacle? Do, do you see any evidence of a Christian profession in this person's life? Uh, did, is there anything that, would, that we should know about that would, would uh, be concerning to us? You know, I always thought that this was kind of, a, kind of a bold step, maybe a little invasive. You know, here in the 21st century, that might lead to a lawsuit. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, recently in my church, we were talking about teenagers who were wanting to be baptized and join the church. And as elders, we were saying, well, if, if this teenager wants to join the church, uh, as part of the membership process, we should probably talk to his parents. Right? Because they're a part of the church. Like, ask the parents, Did you, I, I trust you know this. Does your teenager live like a Christian at home? Are there anything that we should be aware of? And as, I, as we were talking about this, I just thought, oh, that sounds a lot like this idea of a messenger. Right? Um, you know, we would feel very natural in doing that for the teenager. Back then, they felt very natural to do it for anybody who joined the church. You know, that you would kind of ask around, hey, did you know this person's uh, joining the church? So, uh, it's quite striking that they would do this. Uh, step five, they would have another congregational meeting when then this messenger would come back and give a report. Hey, here's what I found out. I've, I've asked around. People, people all commend this person. 
Uh, he clearly lives like a Christian. Uh, you know, often I would imagine when you're asking those neighbors about what they think of this person joining the church, that would probably lead to some evangelistic conversations. Like, oh, wow, okay, so he's joining the, the Metab. He's a Christian. Um, and uh, I trust that the Lord used that also in that community. So the congregation would hear about this. Uh, then the chair of the congregational meeting would interview the, the, the applicant uh, in front of the whole congregation. They would be dismissed, and then the congregation would vote to re- receive them into membership. Uh, and then if they haven't been baptized yet, they would be scheduled for a baptism. And then they would be scheduled for the next Lord's Supper service, where upon taking the Lord's Supper, they would be officially brought into uh, the membership of the church. They would receive the right hand of fellowship was the language that they would use. Uh, so a six-step process, pretty, pretty lengthy, pretty, pretty rigorous. Uh, from 1854 to 1892, Spurgeon's 38 years of ministries, I counted up how many people they brought into membership, and I counted 13,797 people brought into membership at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. As far as I could tell, all of them went through that process. No shortcuts. Um, followed pretty consistently throughout Spurgeon's ministry. Uh, And to me, that is evidence that what was happening under Spurgeon's ministry was a a genuine revival, a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, People weren't just getting, like, emotionally charged during a service and counting hands and, you know, they were, like, reporting all these, like, huge numbers. No, um, there was no, like, spontaneous baptisms going on. Uh, No, this was a, a, a rigorous membership process which is strong evidence, I think, that people were genuinely converted by the work of the Spirit. Uh, and therefore, it's a huge privilege for them to, to profess faith and to go through that process to join the church. Um, Spurgeon's brother, his, his associate pastor, write th- wrote this, We have never yet found it tend to keep members out of our midst, while we have known it of service in detecting a mistake or satisfying a doubt previously entertained. We deny that this process keeps away any worth having. Surely, if their Christianity cannot stand before a body of believers and speak amongst loving, sympathizing hearts, it is as well to ask if it be the cross-bearing, public-confessing faith of the Bible. So, I mean, the, the, the rigorous nature of it was intentional, um, especially in this nominal culture with all these people coming along Spurgeon wanted to make it harder, not easier, for them to join. Uh, because he, what he was after was not so much rigor. He was after, is this a credible profession of faith? Right? That's the question. And to answer that in that context, he needed a rigorous process. You know, if in Portland, Oregon, where I previously pastored, if we tried to do something like this, nobody would <laughs> join the church, right? It, it was, we could tell people were serious enough about church membership, membership just by their willingness to turn out on a Saturday morning. Right to to a to a two-hour membership class, um, you gotta you gotta adjust your context, obviously. But in this context, this rigor made sense uh, because he's after a credible profession of faith. Now, bringing people in is one thing. How do you keep watch over them once they're in? So number two, meaningful membership. Um, you know, one of the challenges that Spurgeon faced was having such a large church. It was maintaining kind of a meaningful membership count. Uh, speaking to his students, Spurgeon lamented how poorly some churches did in maintaining their membership roles. He says this, I would urge upon the resolve to have no church unless it be a real one. The fact is that too frequently 
religious statistics are shockingly false. Let us not keep names on our books when they are only names. Certain of the good old people like to keep them there and cannot bear to have them removed. But when you do not know where the individuals are, nor what they are, how can you count them? They are gone to America or Australia or to heaven. But as far as your role is concerned, they are with you still. Is this a right thing? It may not be possible to be absolutely accurate, but let us aim at it. Well, when Spurgeon became a pastor of this old historic church, one of the first things he did was go through his membership directory and find out, okay, where are these people, right? Uh, some of them were interested in coming back because of the new pastors. Other has, others had moved out of the area and joined other churches. Some had died. Uh, some had simply disappeared, and they, they just couldn't find them anymore. Um, and so whatever it was, all these people were, were removed from membership through various processes. And, and Spurgeon would keep this work up. It, it was hard work not only taking people into membership, but also keeping track of people once they joined the church. So I, I think what's amazing is that not simply that the church membership was 5,300 after he died, but that it was only 5,300 after he died, with 14,000 people having joined his church during his lifetime, right? The fact that he then, having brought them in, did the hard work of keeping up with them and seeing them out once they moved on. Um, how did he do that? How did he maintain an accurate membership? Well, one of the primary methods he used was uh, communion tickets. Um, upon joining the church, uh, you would have received a card with 12 perforated tickets on them, and each ticket would have a unique number, unique to you. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and um, at the communion service each month, the way you could uh, come to the table would be by turning in your ticket, showing that you were a member of the church, and uh, the tickets were collected, and that would indicate your attendance at the Lord's Supper that month. Uh, and for those who were absent from the Lord's Supper for more than three consecutive months, then the elders would receive a report of those people, and the elders would know to follow up with you. And they would write you a letter. They would visit you. Um, and you can see that the elders doing that work when you look at the elders' meeting minutes. Again, those are there at the Metropolitan Tabernacle Archives. Uh, the elders met <clears throat> at least once a month, usually on Mondays before the prayer meeting. And their, their primary business was just the pastoral care of the church, and especially following up on those who were not attending uh, you know, they would investigate and they would discover, oh, this member has died or this member has joined another church. Um, if they joined another church, they would, they would write a letter of dismissal and remove them from church. Sometimes they would discover a, a hardship. Oh, this member hasn't been coming because of illness, uh, because of work, because of um, the distance, uh, you know, something going on in their marriage. And, uh, and Spurgeon always encouraged his elders to, to be patient in caring for these members uh, with non-attendance. You know, there were those who would say, oh, if you haven't attended for three months, you're removed right away. You know, you haven't been at church. No, Spurgeon didn't do that. He, he said this, if a sheep has strayed, let us seek it. To disown it in a hurry is not the master's method. Ours is to be the labor and the care, for we are overseers of the flock of Christ to the end that all may be presented faultless before God. One month's absence from the house of God is, in some cases, a deadly sign of a profession renounced, while in others, a long absence is an affliction to be sympathized with, 
and not a crime to be capitally punished. So he, he saw these, th- these um, signs of non-attendance as opportunities for shepherding. Um, as, el- as elders visited these people who were not attending, they would work patiently with them to encourage their participation, to provide for their needs, uh, to find others in the church to come in and surround them and care for them. There were some instances where people weren't attending and they would discover that there was serious unrepentant sin, right? Spurgeon says, a deadly sign of a profession renounced. And so the elders would often discuss cases of church discipline. Uh, you know, multiple elders would usually be involved and if the, if the case was serious enough, this would lead to bringing the matter before the congregation and the congregation eventually taking a vote of discipline against that member, removing them from membership as an act of discipline. Uh, in the first seven years of Spurgeon's ministry, I've seen cases of discipline involving embezzlement, uh, marital abandonment, financial and sexual impropriety, adultery, uh, lasciviousness. Does anybody know what lasciviousness means? I'm not sure. Uh, I should look that up. Lying, neglect of religious duties, repeated thefts, immorality, and spousal abuse. Uh, on one particularly painful occasion, uh, one of the officers of the church, one of the deacons of the church, fell into scandalous sins, and the church had to discipline him. Um, you know, in other, in other words, the New Park Street Chapel, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, was like any other church. You know, we have to deal with the reality of unrepentant sin. And yet, as painful as this process was, Spurgeon believed that true Christians uh, could not ultimately fall away. And so there's always, they're always holding out the hope that maybe there would be a restoration. And it's so sweet, to, you know, as I comb through these minute books, I came across 21 cases of restoration where after discipline, the person repented and was restored back to the church with much joy. Um, you know, and, that, and that's another purpose of church discipline, isn't it? Our hope in calling people to repentance and putting them out of the church is that people would wake up to the gravity of their sin and, and repent of their sins and come back to faith in Christ. You know, Spurgeon did all this, pastoring a church of 5,000. It would have been so much easier just to be kind of a, a, a preaching pastor. You know, um, he talks about one of his heroes, Roland Hill, who would, you know, um, appear, you know, kind of from the back to the pulpit right before the sermon preach a sermon and then disappear again <laughs> to the back. And that's kind of how he pastored his church. And, uh, you know, Spurgeon didn't do that. He, he was a, a real pastor. Um, there's nothing wrong with having a conference or a preaching station, but it's not the local church. The local church, when you have a church, it's so much more than just the person who's preaching. It's that whole body who is together bearing witness to the message of the gospel. And together, in the way they're loving one another, in the, in the way they're living out their profession of faith, they're together being a picture of what God has done through the gospel. Um, that's what Spurgeon wanted to create. He didn't want to just be a, a solo voice. He wanted to have a, a, a body together proclaiming the gospel. Um, church membership is so much more than names on the roll. It's a profession to the world that, that the people of God are here, that the kingdom of God has come in the hearts and lives of these people. And together they work until the Lord brings us home. So, the church is the display of the glory of God. Uh, let the, and then the, the second lesson then for this session is we want to think about the lesson of the college. 
so that's the next picture. Um, <clears throat> and, and the lesson here is basically this, that the gospel advances as preachers are sent out and as churches are planted. The gospel advances as preachers are sent and churches are planted. You know, Spurgeon's concern, as great as his church was, was not just to see his own church flourish and prosper, but to see, he longed to see hundreds of gospel-preaching churches throughout London and England and the rest of the world. And the only way for that to happen was through faithful preachers leading those churches. God advances as the gospel, in his work in this world as the gospel is preached through his word. Uh, this is what we see given to us in the New Testament. Jesus uh, gives the Great Commission to go into all nations, teaching them to obey, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? baptizing them into churches, um, discipling them. And these churches then become beacons of light to their surrounding communities as they also participate in the work of sending out evangelists and missionaries to the nations. So, so Spurgeon's vision was not that the Metab would be sort of the, the end-all, be-all in itself, but know that it would be sort of a hub that would promote further gospel work much far beyond it. And that takes us to the story of the pastor's college. Uh, in 1854, uh, a member of Spurgeon's church, T.W. Medhurst, was converted. Uh, and he was so converted, so taken by the gospel, that even though he had never been educated, he was trained as a rope maker, uh, he knew nothing about preaching, and yet he just felt, I, I got to tell people about Jesus. And so he went out to the street corners and began to preach. Uh, I, I would imagine these were pretty rough sermons. And uh, two old ladies came to Spurgeon and said, hey, can you, have you seen what this new church member is doing, this T.W. Medhurst? Uh, you got to stop him. He's embarrassing us. You know, he's he's going to embarrass our whole church. So Spurgeon went and talked to Medhurst, and Medhurst basically said, I've got to preach. I've got to do something. You know, I, I'm going to keep on preaching unless you cut off my head. And Spurgeon goes back to these two older ladies and says, well, this is what he said. He's going to keep preaching unless I cut off his head. And the old ladies were like, well, well you can't do that. Don't cut off his head. Well, I guess we should help him then get, get his education. And so Spurgeon said, yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's, let's get him a proper education. And so that's how Spurgeon began. He, even though as busy as he was, he took this, this guy under his wing and began to arrange for him to have some theological training, uh, realizing actually he needed some, even some basic training, some basic education. Uh, but also he began to read theology with him, began to mentor him. And um, pretty soon the number of young men uh, began to grow. Guys who were uh, wanting to preach showed some fruitfulness in preaching and yet needing some training. Uh, guys who were coming from largely poor backgrounds, uneducated backgrounds, uh, but they began to come, and the number grew from 2 to 4 to 8 to 16. Uh, from 1854 to 1861, Spurgeon basically covered all of their expenses. He would take these guys in who had no money, uh, and he would cover their room and board. He would buy them books. He would uh, cover their tuition if they needed to be, uh, to, to, to be educated. Now, around this time in 1860, Spurgeon discovered that um, his books in America were being edited. Uh, he was funding this training largely from the sale of his sermons. And yet, 
he discovered in 1860 that American publishers were editing his sermons, particularly editing out his comments on slavery. Um, Spurgeon was very outspoken against slavery. And so to clear things up, Spurgeon began to write editorials for a Boston newspaper uh, called The Christian Watchman and Reflector. And he, in those statements, began to declare his hatred of slavery. He declared that he would refuse to sit at the Lord's table with a slave owner as much as he would a murderer or a, a kidnapper. Well, as you can imagine, sales in the South plummeted. Uh, they, there began to be book burnings of Spurgeon sermons held in the public squares throughout the South, uh, probably not too far from here. Uh, people began to warn him not to travel to the American South or else he would find himself lynched. Um, and as sales dropped in America, his college funds also began to dwindle. Uh, Spurgeon offered to sell his horse and carriage in order to keep the school going, but his deacons refused to let him do so because they knew how much he traveled, how much he used them for different speaking engagements. So Spurgeon thought, okay, that's the end of it. The pastor's college is coming to an end. Um, I'll, I'll just spend the rest that I have, and once that money is finished, then we'll take it as a sign from the Lord that this work is over. Um, but that wasn't the end. Uh, in 1861, in May of 1861, the elders and the deacons brought the matter to the congregation, and the congregation voted unanimously to adopt the pastor's college as now a ministry of the church. It's no longer just a ministry of our pastor. This is something that we as a church want to support, um, <clears throat> and that, and the, and the pastor's college then was born as it is well, as it was during Spurgeon's time. That's what made the pastor's college so unique. In addition to providing for the college financially, the church also provided the context for the training of these pastors. Uh, what made it so unique was that it was not a college, you know, set apart in some distant place, but it was intimately connected to a living, working, breathing local church. Uh, so a lot of the members of the pastor's college, uh, students, simply began as members of the church, uh, as they were converted, they began to admire their, 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 their pastor, and they wanted to uh, imitate him, and they began to be involved with Bible studies and discipleship and look for opportunities to preach. Um, the church provided evening classes where they could attend to get a basic education without giving up their jobs. And if they began to develop an ability to preach, they were encouraged then to, to use those abilities. And before long, a lot of these young men began to apply for the pastor's college. You know, Spurgeon, as we saw earlier, he required some lay preaching experience before he joined the pastor's college. He said this, Brothers, we have no right to thrust someone into the ministry until he has first given evidence of his own conversion and has also given proof not only of being an average worker, but something more. If he cannot labor in the church before he pretends to be a minister, he is good for nothing. If he cannot, while he is a, a private member of the church, perform all the duties of that position with zeal and energy. And if he is not evidently a consecrated man while he is a private Christian, certainly you do not feel the guidance of the Holy Spirit to bid him to enter the ministry. So <clears throat> the church really became kind of a training ground for people testing their calling to the ministry. And, you know, to study at the pastor's college, you didn't need a college degree. You didn't need any money. Uh, you didn't even need to know how to read. Um, they often, they sometimes took in people who were illiterate. But 
what you needed to be able to do was to preach. And you needed to have a seal of the Holy Spirit upon your preaching, meaning somebody must have had to have been converted under your preaching. Um, and unless that was the case, you could not be a, a student there at the pastor's college. So, so Spurgeon would turn down well-educated, wealthy young men who admired Spurgeon, who came to study simply because of him, because they had, but then they had never preached before, but he would turn them down. And he accepted guys like T.W. Medhurst and guys like Thomas Johnson, who was a former slave from Virginia, uh, who would go on to be a missionary to Africa. Uh, once you studied at the pastor's college, you would receive a, a course in, of education in Greek and Hebrew, in Latin, in biblical studies, and theology, and history, classics, preaching, logic, and much more. And Spurgeon would be one of your lecturers there on those Friday afternoon lectures. But perhaps most distinctive, again, is the fact that the pastor's college was immersed in the life of a living local church. Uh, these students would participate in members' meetings, in the worship gatherings. They would sometimes live with an elder or a deacon in the church. They would work together with other members of the church to to evangelize, to start new church plants, um, and they would watch their pastor shepherd the church week after week. Well, over his lifetime, almost 900 men were trained out of the pastor's college. They went out to serve church, as church planners, as evangelists, as missionaries, serving throughout England and America and Canada, Australia, Africa, China, South America, New Zealand. Uh, we have records of um, pastor's college guys going even as far as Kansas and Ohio, uh, maybe down here in Arkansas. I should look up if there are any guys that came to Arkansas. Um, <clears throat> and they, they not only went out, um, wherever they went out, they, they sought to plant churches. Um, <clears throat> and I could talk much more about how they planted churches throughout England. They doubled the number of Baptist churches throughout Spurgeon's 40 years uh, throughout England. Quite remarkable. Um, and um, yeah, well, you can read more about that in my book. We're running out of time here. Uh, let me just say one last thing. Um, the lesson of the college, the gospel advances as churches are planted, as preachers are sent out. Um, and, and I just want to, you know, Blake, I love that you're doing events like this. Um, I know that you have a heart for training up other, other men. And I will say to the church, uh, well done and keep it up in terms of allowing Blake to do that. You know, a, a, a part of the pastor's job description, as we see in 2 Timothy 2, is to raise up that next generation, those who will be able to train others and, and carry on the work of the gospel. Um, right there with preaching the gospel, right there with shepherding, and all the other things the pastor does is also training up the next generation. And so you want to invest in that, free up Blake to do that. Um, you know, as a seminary, I work at a seminary. Seminaries are really helpful uh, we work best when we're coming alongside the local church in the work of pastoral training. Uh, we cannot do that on our own, right? And we need healthy churches doing that so that all that pastoral training is taking place in the context of a living, breathing, working church. So, so keep, keep that work up. Keep creating space for your pastors to do that. Um, I just want to say one more thing. You know, we, we, we could end the story there with this happy ending of churches being planted, missionaries being sent out, um, <clears throat> the Metab being like flourishing under Spurgeon's leadership. That's actually not how Spurgeon's story ends. Uh, Spurgeon's story 
his life ends with actually a lot of heart, heartache. Um, <clears throat> in the late 19th, 18th century, 19th century, there was kind of this new theology coming out of Germany, uh, something called higher criticism that began to doubt um, supernatural elements. It began to view Scripture as a solely human document. Uh, people began to question uh, the, the miraculous accounts of Scripture. Uh, Christians began to wonder if Jesus was, in fact, divine. Um, they began to look for him more as a, a moral teacher uh, who taught us to love our neighbors or love our enemies. Uh, they began to doubt the atonement. Uh, they began to doubt the resurrection. And, and the challenging thing about this new teaching that was rising out of Germany and influencing England and all parts of the world uh, was that the people who embraced this new modern theology continued to call themselves Christians. They continued to be part of, you know, Christian churches. Uh, they continued to talk about Jesus and talk about the cross and talk about the resurrection, but they meant very different things by those terms. Um, and this kind of teaching began to infiltrate every denomination there in England, including the Baptist Union. Now, Spurgeon had begun to detect this kind of teaching very early on um, and began to speak out against it. But in 1887, um, he, he dies in 1892, so like five years before his death. In 1887, he begins to speak out more publicly against this new teaching. Um, <clears throat> he begins to call out people in the Baptist Union for tolerating this teaching. Um, the, the Baptist Union had basically, by that point, so watered down what it, the requirements for being a part of it. All they required in terms of doctrinal conviction was a belief in believer's baptism. That's it. All you have to do to be a part of the Baptist Union is hold to believer's baptism, but nothing else doctrinal. And so Spurgeon thought, that's not enough. We need, we need more to hold us together. And so he began to write against this new theology, calling it the downgrade controversy. He wrote this. A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements. And on this plea, it usurps pulpits which were erected for gospel preaching. The atonement is scouted. The inspiration of Scripture is derided. The Holy Spirit is de degraded into an influence. And the punishment of sin is turned into a fiction. And yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brothers and maintain a confederacy with them. Well, Spurgeon said this new teaching is not Christianity at all. And <clears throat> if you don't believe in the work of Christ, if you don't believe in the Holy Spirit, if you don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, you're not even a Christian. This is not historic Christianity. You know, it's something else. Call it something else, but don't call it Christian. Well, as you can imagine, the Baptist Union uh, was stirred up, uh, <clears throat> and, and they refused to do anything about it. Uh, and so Spurgeon resigns from the Baptist Union, you know, and that was a huge thing. I mean, he was such a huge figure. Imagine, like, John Piper resigning from Desiring God, right? Or, or, or Mark Dever resigning from Nine Marks. I mean, that was, it was like a monumental thing. And in response, the Baptist Union publicly rebukes Spurgeon for his pride. They pass on a statement of faith, which actually ended up being totally worthless because they said this is only a historic statement of faith. It's not a requirement for what we believe. Um, but so many of his students, even his own brother, voted to approve the new statement of faith and to vindicate the Baptist Union. And so Spurgeon is brokenhearted. Uh, at the end of his life, he dies with many of his closest friends. 
turned against him, with the newspapers attacking him, caricaturing him as stubborn and intolerant and old-fashioned. The reason why his books are in Kansas City, Missouri, is because the theology there in London had moved on. Uh, We have letters of pastors writing to Americans who are interested in buying these books, telling them, hey, don't don't even bother buying these books. These books are antiquated. They're nearly worthless. Uh, Nobody here is interested in them. Save your money. Um, But Spurgeon, uh, even while he was brokenhearted, he knew that he wasn't antiquated or intolerant or any of those things. He knew that he was actually fighting for the truth of the gospel um, and the historic teaching of Scripture. He said this to his students. He, he, He knew that this modern theology was just a fad, and he was right. And one day it would soon pass away. Uh, He said this, I am quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years, but the more distant future shall vindicate me. Um, Well, he was eaten by dogs. His his wife believed that Spurgeon died uh, in 1892 at the age of 57, not so much of physical ailments, but of a broken heart. Uh, And yet here we are today, right, in the year 2022, we're talking about his life and ministry. Uh, we are so grateful for the way he stood on the historic teaching of Scripture and held on to the historic gospel. Uh, I think the more distant future has vindicated him. False teaching is always a fad. False teaching will always be worn out on the anvil of Scripture. And yet I think Spurgeon wasn't just thinking about the year 2022. I think he was thinking about even the more distant future. Uh, that final day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and says to all his faithful servants, well done and good, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. You know, I think Spurgeon's life is a lesson to us about faithfulness. You know, hold on to the gospel. Give your life to seeing its advance um, until the day Christ returns, right? until the very end, because we, we don't know what will happen in our day. We may be eaten by dogs during our lifetimes for the next 50 years. Uh, But we can be sure of this, that when Christ returns, that more distant future day, uh, he will vindicate us, you know, as we hang on to him, as we cling to his gospel. Well, friends, that's all I've got. Uh, Let me close this in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us faithful, uh, that we would walk away from here being convinced of the truth of the gospel, that Christ has risen from the dead, and that he is coming back. Uh, And, Lord, that we want to spend our lives getting the good news out to those who do not know him. Lord, that he may be glorified, uh, that his reign, his good, loving, saving reign may be known on this earth. Lord, make us faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.